This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. The following episode of TOEFOP is rated M.A. It may contain Batman references, time travel references, sexual references, lost trains of thought, and mild course language. TOEFOP advises that the program is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15 or anyone who enjoys succinct, coherent conversation that might actually have a point. Minors must be accompanied by a parent, guardian or priest. This is John Deke speaking. Up. I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson. And new intro from Podcast Mike tonight because he does a little countdown for Charlie new one. at the start. And he said, Tofop 302. I think it might be 303. So already I was a little thrown. And then he goes, in three, two, one, and then go. He added a go on the end. Now, I the know. whole point of the three, two, one countdown is that once the person has said one, you know that you have permission to speak. You can't be adding an extra word on the end after the one. <laughs> you can put a go in three, two, one. You can say TOEFOP 303 go in three, two, one. You can even do three, go, two, one. It'd be confusing, but you can't do three, two, one, go. I mean, I was about to speak. Like my, my vocal cords were just about to begin vibrating when he threw the go in. And I... I was wondering if maybe I looked like I wasn't prepared. Maybe Podcast Mike was going, this guy, this idiot. I mean, I've, I've been producing the last 20-odd shows, and this idiot looks like he doesn't know when to start a podcast. Also, go is such a weird thing to say at the start of a podcast. Like, it's like the start of a race. Ready, set, go, right? Like, you know, on your marks, yeah. get set, go. Like, that's for something that is a sprint you know, for something that is like, you know, a, a competition, you've got to get out of the blocks. I think this podcast has proved over the last 10 years, Charlie, that being fast out of the blocks is not necessarily something that we're particularly good at. No, we uh, we just worked out how to record the show properly. We had a Instagram live disaster only three three weeks ago. We've only just updated our website to be like better than a like a, a a WordPress site that you might see on some dodgy real estate agency from like 1996. We've only just caught up to the modern day. I think it's good timing for websites. I feel like websites are about to make a bit of a comeback. I've got a personal feeling that mm -hmm. what happened was websites became kind of useless. Everybody had their own website and then Facebook and Twitter and all these social media companies came along and they just replaced the idea of why you would need a website. What you needed was a web presence mm -hmm. that would reflect the things that would normally be yeah. on your website sort of on those, you know, Facebook or Twitter or whatever it happened to be at the time. I reckon because there is a massive distrust of those organisations now, Twitter's become accessible and Facebook's stealing all your information, that there is some appeal in going to somebody's website again now and accessing their entertainment from a place that isn't on Facebook or Twitter. Maybe we've, maybe the fact that it took us 10 years to get our website together is actually good timing <laughs> accidentally on our behalf and we'll just be getting into websites as people are getting back into websites. We miss when people were into websites in the first place. We miss that rush. Uh, we went through this entire period of not really getting a good Facebook or Twitter presence, but we may have lucked into getting a website just when people want to go to websites again. Are we like one of those tribes that sort of like lived in isolation you know never developed sort of technologically and we are waiting for this disaster like uh, we we'll wait for the pandemic to sweep through and lay waste to everything and then we'll come out and we'll start integrating into a progressive society on a technological perspective i think that, that you there's something in what you say firstly I, I think it's disrespectful to a tribe that's never experienced technology to suggest that after 10 years they wouldn't have worked out how to record a podcast. I think the tribe would be way ahead of us in that regard. So firstly, apologise to any Amazonian lost tribes that we've insulted there. But secondly, I love that idea. What if during what's going on now, the earth is kind of wiped clean of, you know, like our idea of civilization Cities. and the only people who survive are those tribes that are untouched by the idea that they're going to come into contact with anybody who has the disease. Well, isn't that like, I don't know if it's, you'd, you'd class it as a conspiracy theory, but it is one of those kind of wacky theories that uh, there were, there were humans on this earth 
prior to you know what we've recorded in time like prior to dinosaurs like that the planet resets there are civilizations and and stuff that existed before us and then they've been decimated either by disease or natural disaster or whatever it's a bit like the theory put forward in the matrix each iteration thinks that they are the first to be there but no 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 this has happened you know for eons yeah they've been running this simulation you know this cosmic simulation you know this universal simulation biological simulation what they're trying to do is put together an evolved species that can continue to evolve without destroying itself and unfortunately we're at the tricky part of the game where we've survived some challenges over the years but we're really in the middle of one right now it is I know that we've spoken about this a lot, and I guess everybody's very aware of it, but we're recording this on a day where in Australia, a country that had seemed to have kind of gone on top of, you know, at least the first wave of the coronavirus, and still a lot of the states, that is pretty much the case. You know, there's 30,000 people going to games of football in some states, but we go to Melbourne now that has announced that from like six o'clock tonight, so actually two hours ago when we were recording this, that they've gone into a... Um, a compulsory lockdown, a curfew. Like the city has a curfew. State of disaster. Yeah. I mean, which is great for their number plates because they've never been able to settle on one, Melbourne. (laughs) It's the garden state. It's the education state. It's the place to be. You know what? Now it's just the state of emergency. It's awful. Like it's it's really horrible. I um, have been Zooming with my family on a regular basis. I've got family all over Australia and I've got, you know, three siblings who are still in Melbourne and... uh, just the endurance test of this for all Melburnians, like uh, I, I just can't comprehend how I would cope in the same circumstances. And, you know, I, it's a necessary thing to do. Like I'm not saying that, you know, that th- th- should be done in any other way, but just the mental strength and um, just the energy to go through all of it again. Because, you know, you sort of feel like the first lockdown – Victoria was one of the kind of strictest states, you know, they did everything that they, they could and it was like mask wearing and social distancing and stuff and still it wasn't enough. And, you know, obviously there's been some fucking major, major bungles along the way, but for the ordinary Victorian, you know, that has nothing to do with them. You know, they're just sort of going with what the consensus is. And I just, I, you know, my heart is so heavy for all those people down there. It shows that the Joker was overcomplicating it. If you really want to destroy a city, all you have to do is just, you don't have to pose as a nurse at the hospital. You have to pose as a security guard at the hotel that's got the sick people and just have sex with one of them and then just take that out in the community and destroy everything. I mean, that is the kind of most salacious of all the stories, but it is so hard to uh, figure out how that seduction occurred, right? Like, I mean... I guess in a porno it makes sense, <laughs> like the idea of like the, you know, and because I know there were female, do we know, was it a male security guard and a female or was it two males or was it like, do we know what the dynamic of the seductor and the seductee were? Well, there, there may have been more than one. Uh, there, it's not 100% sure that that even happened. It seems to be the common wisdom that it happens, but I think like everything, you've got to take it with a grain of salt. It'll all come out in the wash and they'll decide whether that was exactly what happened or not. But let's just pretend that it is what happened. In the story that is going around, um, it is a male security guard and, yes, a female coronavirus sufferer, and which is the right way around because I think women would be more sensible than to take the risk, whereas, like, men, you're like, you know, we all know that guy yeah. who's like, well, yeah, she's got, yeah, she might have coronavirus, but... I just, I mean, was it love at first sight? Was it lust at first sight? Like, who makes the first move? Does she sneeze at any point during the lovemaking? I mean, imagine if it is love at first sight. Imagine if they end up staying together forever and every time someone is like, so how did you guys meet? They have to go, so you remember <laughs> COVID, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, imagine if they conceive. Imagine if there is a love child from the situation. You have to call it COVID, right? That has to be the name of your kid. COVID-20. Baby baby zero. (laughs) As you are roaming the wasteland that once was Australia, as people warm themselves besides flaming barrels, and they ask, uh, what was your story? Where did you come from? You say, well, my parents started all this. It's so funny that um, Melbourne is shut down now until... September the 13th on stage four restrictions, which is pretty severe. You know, literally only leaving your house for an hour to exercise and you can only do it with one other person. You can't go without 
within you know, five kilometers of the place you live, you have to go to the nearest supermarket, only one person can go out a day. All these, you know, very severe shutdowns plus the curfew from, what is it, eight o'clock at night or six o'clock at night through to five o'clock the next morning. So incredible tough restrictions that they're currently going through. And they've got those until September the 13th. Let me ask you this, Charlie. I currently still have some shows on sale in Melbourne for October the 13th. What do you reckon the likelihood of those shows happening is going to be? I'm saying it's probably more likely there will be a purge occurring on October 13th <laughs> than a stand-up show. Although if you could somehow, if you could somehow Juggalo festival style become the comedian for the purge, like that might be... That might be, they're the only people who can come to the show is some purges. Well, we might as well sell some tickets, right? Good opportunity for those comedians who say there's too much censorship. <laughs> Good, the purge is the perfect 24 hours. <laughs> While everyone's purging, you're allowed to also purge all your darkest thoughts and your like wrongest material. So like there are people just doing, hey, I don't want to purge on purge night. I just want to hear some really racist and homophobic jokes. And I'm allowed to for 24 hours. So I'm going to the comedy club. Well, I was thinking more like it's a really tough ask. If you're one of those edgelord, you know, anti-PC comedians, you're just going to go out. You've got, a, you've got your own YouTube channel and you just tell it like it is. And now you're doing like stand-up and stuff. And you go out there and it's like you are talking to people who dismember and torture each other on purge night. Nothing you're, so, you're going to say is going to shock them, Edgelord. Yeah, but there might not be people who – there may just be people who've gone out for comedy. They're not also out do you for reckon, purge. Do you, do you, know you reckon mean? purge night people would risk going to see live comedy? Well, do you think people will go risk to go and see live comedy a month after complete shutdown of the state? <laughs> I don't think so. So I think it's more likely that they'll go out to see some edgy jokes on Purge Night. Louis C.K. is doing a 24-hour gig on fucking Purge Night. And some people would go to that, I think. I haven't actually seen the Purge films. Have you? I am obsessed with the idea of the Purge films so much that I've watched all of them, despite the fact that I don't think any of them are particularly excellent. Some are better than others. There's bits and pieces of them that is excellent. And... But the mythology of it, the idea of the purge is something that I am obsessed with because it feels realistic enough to me. It feels like one of those ideas where I'm like, yeah, the way America's going, this isn't beyond, you know, like let's say it keeps going the way it's been going for another year or another 18 months. Trump delays the election you know there's no democracy in america anymore there's troops in the street there's people being abducted the idea that somebody says look i gotta be honest with you we need a circuit breaker for all this like we're going to have another civil war unless we have an opportunity to have a circuit breaker and then suddenly there's like a purge it's not beyond the realms of possibility the next movie in the purge series may be a documentary <laughs> So tell me, like, is there one of the Purge films, is there a moment in which a scientist or historian explains how the Purge came about and why they decided to adopt it? Yeah, well, in fact, one of the movies, so, like, they do it, and this is, there's a lot of things to like about this series, and one of them is that the first Purge is, like, the third or fourth film. Like, so they go back and then go right. back to the, so once you've established what it's like, you know, ongoing, they go back to actually where it started in the first place. And I can't remember the exact details, but it was a social scientist sort of experiment. It happened all on one island originally, like, you know, one restricted right. community where they could have a controlled environment and that was the first purge. And it was sold, you know, very much on that idea that it was some sort of societal circuit breaker, that it was what society needed to then be able to go about their life pretty normally otherwise. It's the cheat so, day strategy. I mean, this is the most popular diet in the world at the moment is cheat day, right? Like, you know, you yes. can do that sort of thing that where you've got to eat well all the week, but then you can have the day. You know, The Rock does it all the time. He sits down and he eats all, all that food. He puts it on fucking Instagram. That is your dieting version of the purge, right? Well, there's another dieting version of the purge, but that is the <laughs> his analogy. Yeah, that, that's considered that is a, the dieting a serious version mental illness of the purge. So I don't think it's beyond, beyond the realms of somebody at least suggesting. But I, I just think about like the way politics is, and it's so hard at the moment. Like the uh, po politics is so partisan now that you know it's hard to push even a slightly kind of left of center measure. The fact that any politician would get up on a platform of let's have a purge night everyone and it gets voted in 
Or are we talking about an authoritarian state in the Purge universe? Is that is it an authoritarian state that implements it, like Running Man? It's 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 a state not that far away from the current United States of America. Um, here we go. There's a, I found a little explainer here. The Purge universe explained the basics. Uh, the Purge takes place in a near future world where an organization called the you've New Founding Fathers... I believe, of- Will. I think you've oh. muted yourself. Oh, okay. It says on my screen, you're muted. Yep. No, Talk I have now? I've muted There myself. you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. So, I was getting yeah. too close to the yeah. truth. <laughs> so- <laughs> <laughs> You were getting too close to the, mu- the truth, so you censored yourself. <laughs> I do, well, I, I don't know if I did it. Like, I mean, I, maybe Skype did it. Maybe some forces more powerful no. than us did it. Uh, the Purge takes place in a near future world where, where an organization called the New Founding Fathers of America. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that you could have an organization now called the New Founding Fathers of America. Okay. And they take control of the United States. So let's say in the, if it was in the real world, it'd be like the Lincoln Project. Right. On the surface, they look to be like establishing American values. But if you dig a little deeper into the people behind it, you're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know you guys have got our best intentions. In response to rising crime rates, unemployment and social unrest... So same environment as we're currently going through. The new founding fathers created an annual holiday called the Purge. For one night every year, American citizens are given 12 hours of complete freedom to commit whatever crimes they please. So that's the trick. It doesn't have to be murder. You just can commit any crime you want. Now, this is like this might be a way that, you know, there's looting and rioting in different cities. Maybe they say hey, you've all got to go back to your houses, but we're going to give you one night a year where you can go out and you can loot and you can perch. How do you pick the night? Um, okay. I mean, because idea- it's going to be controversial, right? Because like, there's going to be people who have problems with it being in what season it's going to be in. Like, oh, we can't purge in the middle of winter. It's freezing outside. Or if you... I mean, is it the entire of America is purging? Because what about like yep. time zone difference? Can you jump on a plane and purge, get an extra five hours purging done if you fly from the East Coast back West? Yeah, you've got to fly on Purging Atlantic, that uh, <laughs> aeroplane network. You can't purge until you fly across the border. The pilot makes an announcement that you've crossed state lines and time zones and then suddenly people start purging each other in the air. <laughs> um, yeah, so the idea behind the purge is that they release their pent-up aggression and they become better hardworking citizens the other 364 days of the year, right? Okay. So so is there zero there is zero crime during the rest of the year, the 364 days uh, there's there's zero crime because people are so satiated by the purge that there's no not even jaywalking or is crime still happening the rest of the year around? Crime is happening but it's down because Often the people who, you know, are forced to commit crimes are the ones who are being purged as well. You know, the homeless and intransient and, you know, people who ordinarily would be outside the mainstream laws of society tend to be the ones who are purged. So, like, it's a way to wipe out, you know, minority populations and people who are drains on the larger system, basically, at its very heart. So, um, here are the movies. This is sounding like a documentary. (laughs) Right. So... The first purge, and these are just little, like there's a little blurb on each of the um, first four. So uh, the purge is the original one. The original purge unfolds in the near future landscape of... 2020? 2022. Oh, shit. At this point, the purge has been an annual event for several years. Oh, shit. Okay, we're behind. (laughs) And some enterprising individuals like security salesman James Sandon, Ethan Hawke, have found ways of profiting from the event. The film follows Sandon and his family as they discover their lavish home isn't quite as purge-proof as they thought. Um, so, okay. So, basically, it's all set in one house. It's on purge night. You know, there's... You know, anyway. It, it's it's a very clever, good idea and then shot in one sort of place. You know, horror idea. So, the first one. So, then there's Purge Anarchy in 2014. The sequel play- takes place in 2023 during the seventh annual purge. Okay. okay. Anarchy so, introduces an LAPD officer named Leo Barnes who plans on. on using the purge as an opportunity. I'll go on. Yep. So, so 2023 is the seventh year of the purge, which means the first was 2016. Was there any other significant event that happened in America in 2016? Oh, jeez. Oh, boy. <laughs> 
Um, so, so Leo Barnes, Frank Grillo, plans on using the purge as an opportunity to murder the drunk driver who killed Sorry, his son. Pause again. Uh, Frank Barnes, Fred Grillo. Which one is the character and which one uh, is the Lee- actor? They they both sound like made up names. <laughs> well, they were made up names because they weren't the names they said. But Leo Barnes and Frank Grillo. But you're right. They uh, do. <laughs> Frank Grillo is the actor and he plays Leo Barnes. <laughs> Frank Grillo sounds like the made up name. <laughs> Um, he finds himself protecting a mother and daughter trapped in the chaos of the night. The movie also fleshes out the background of Dante Bishop, revealing him to be a member of a growing resistance movement opposing the new founding fathers. I'm sorry, again, the names in these movies. Dante Bishop? Yeah. All right. Played by? Uh, Does not uh, say, I don't think. Uh, Played by Edwin Hodge. Again, stupid name. (laughs) So The Purge... Election Year, which came out in 2016. The second sequel jumps ahead almost two decades to the year 2040. This film introduces Senator Charlie Roan, a presidential candidate campaigning on a pledge to end the purge. Ah, I love it. Faced with a significant political threat, the new founding fathers modified the purge rules to remove all protections for high-level government officials. Roan is forced to rely on the help of Barnes, now retired from the LAPD and working as a head of security, and Bishop's resistance cell to survive another purge. If she can survive and win the presidential election, Roan can offer new hope for this darker United States. Yeah, right. So 14 years later, Frank um, Leo Barnes, Frank Grillo, is yeah. that his name? Leo Barnes. Leo Barnes has re- quit the police force and is now, what's he doing? Private investigator, private security. He's a head of security. Just fucking retire, mate. <laughs> like, I imagine being in a cop in 14 years of the purge. Why would you go into virtually an identical industry? Like, it is specifically going to put you in the firing line. You know what I mean? Like, if you're going to just do, not, do something else. Um, so, the purge, uh, the, first, the first purge was the final sequel in 2018. Uh, it's a prequel looking at how the purge began. Oh, okay. It this explores is what the societal breakdown that led to the US accepting the idea of the annual purge, which we're currently living in. Does it say what those events were? Um, it doesn't, actually, which is annoying. Have you seen this um, one? Yeah, I have seen I've seen all of them. I just can't remember. It was like, <laughs> I, I really do think it was pretty just similar to what we're currently going through. I just love the idea, though, that. So some scientist or scientists somewhere conducted an experiment with a small community and got fantastic results and then were able to sell this through to the, the new founding fathers. Hey, this is what we should roll out nationwide. Yeah. Well, yeah, because of like that it, that it served their political needs. They wanted to get rid of this, you know, underclass of people who were relying on the system. And so they, you know, like all... Yeah, huge organisations are capable of doing. They manipulated the data and they manipulated the press around it and they got, you know, people riled up and, you know, used that mob mentality to push through something that was bad for society but good for their own personal, you know, needs and desires. I'm just fascinated, though, about Community Zero. Like, who were the guinea pigs? Like, how did they run this experiment? Were they aware that they were part of an experiment? Was it like a Stanford kind of thing where people volunteered and signed up for this thing? Because that is the interest. That's the they missed a, an opportunity with the first purge. What they really should have done is the first first purge, which is Community Zero. How did you talk those people into? Because they're the, that's the hardest people to convince. Like when you're in a dystopian society and a you know far right kind of regime, authoritarian, authoritarian, authoritarian you know what I'm trying to say, authoritarian regime rises up. It's easy for them to implement a purge. But early on when this experiment was conducted, how had those people talked into it? That's what I want to know. Okay. Here's the plot of the first purge. In an alternate 2014, the new founding fathers of America are now the most powerful party in the United States. In 2017, uh, their chief of staff and sociologist and, and a sociologist announced an experiment to take place on Staten Island where for 12 hours, citizens will be able to purge and release their inhibitions in any way they choose, including murder. So they don't start with going, hey, we're having a murder festival. They start with saying, hey, this is 12 hours where you can go and take drugs. This is 12 hours where you can go and like, 
indulge all these things that are currently against the law, but you're going to be able to do them with impunity. But you're going to have to risk the idea that while you're doing that, someone might murder you because that's also legal for 12 hours. I mean, isn't that kind of what like certain groups of the far left are arguing for in these areas where they've occupied and they want to defund the police is like they don't want any police in there. Like are you sort of in a, in a way, idealistically you're saying we have no police, then we can, you know, we can handle uh, disputes and matters like this ourselves and we don't have to use like this uh, a strong arm uh, of the government to come in and sort things out. But maybe what you're suggesting when you say get police out of here is a purge because suddenly it's all on the table because who's going to stop you? I'm not saying they are suggesting that, but can someone ask that question in the press conference? Just one more thing. And I know this is probably way out there and this is not what you're going for, but this is not just a sneaky way of getting a purge going, is it? Just put it on the record. Yes or no? I mean, I know there's a lot of confusion around what defund the police actually means. A lot of people are saying it's actually about redirecting funds towards like mental health facilities and social workers and that kind of stuff. But just so we're sure... Is this not a sneaky purge? Excuse me. Just one final question. Just put it, Just say the words out loud. This is not a purge. That's all we want to hear. Uh, okay. This is how they got them interested, Charlie. Okay. The uh, NFFA, the New Founding Fathers of America, Founding Fathers. offered yep. residents of Staten Island $5,000 to stay during the experiment, so not to Fuck. flee the island, and with the additional compensation if they joined the purge and survive. They outfit the participants with contact lens cameras so they can monitor all activity and put tracking devices in them so they'll know uh, they know if they try to leave the island. I mean, the horrible thing about that premise, and I know it's like a sci-fi dystopian future, but I'm like, I reckon there's a lot of people who'd fucking go for that, especially in America right now, where they're about to cut off welfare. Right, the majority of the country, five thousand dollars for you to stay on Death Island for twelve hours. I mean, that's probably how you would do it. The good news is. (laughs) Uh, we're gonna. We've listened to your demands, and we're gonna defund the police. And even better news is, we're gonna offer you five thousand dollars to stay. Just excuse me, sir. Just one more question. This is. This sounds a lot like a purge. Are you trying to get a purge going? I wonder how many people would. How many people would take them up on that? If they came to uh, like your area, your lovely neck of the woods, and they said, "Hey, dudes, uh, you've been rezoned. <laughs> this is now a purge zone." How confident are you that you could barricade your home? Like, how confident would you be? You live in a you know you live in a fairly remote location, so I don't think you're going to get a lot of foot traffic. But if someone specifically was coming out to find you, it would be pretty hairy because you're far from help. It would be. It would have to be someone who really intentionally wanted to murder me. You know, like it wouldn't just be a place where you would be randomly murdered. On it's not opportun- night, opportunistic, think. no. It's too far no, to get to. <laughs> Even I've, I mean, I've gone out there just to like have a have dinner with you and I've complained about how far it is to get out there. So I imagine if you're a purger, you've only got 12 hours. Well, also, there's not like, you know, heaps of neighbours nearby. So you're not getting much bang for your purge buck if you're like yeah. going on a murdering spree. Like it's like it's a one murder night. So it'd have to be someone who specifically wanted to come out and murder yeah. me. And if somebody wanted to do that, how could I guard the house? What are they armed with? What have they come to murder me with? Well, let's be realistic. So it's Australia, so it's hard to get your hands on high-powered assault rifles. If they have anything, it's kind of going to be like a twenty-two or something. So it's a gun that could kill you, but it's not like a shotgun or anything like that. I reckon they've mainly come with like cutting and slicing instruments like swords, crowbars, knives, Things to bash and slice you with. And give me a sense of who this person is, you imagine. Are they a fit person? Are they a young person, an old person, like a man or a woman? I reckon three. I reckon two. It's it's three people uh, between the ages of 19 and 22. It's two guys and a girl. I reckon they are of average strength, height, weight, and fitness. Um, but they are very aggressive. Like there's no negotiating with them. They are not, they are there. To, they're like kids who are out wanting to party. They're in the, the country, they're drunk. They've, they've probably slammed some goon bag, done a couple of nitrous bulbs and now they want to party. But we're in the house already. Yeah, you know, it's purge night. So you've had time to prepare. You could go to Bunnings and get some shit to reinforce your home. But how confident are you that you could seal it all up or at least barricade yourself in a part of your house that would be purge proof to three, three teens, and a 22-year-old with a with cutting and slicing and bashing instruments. So 
firstly, I extremely confident. So if really? it, if it were me alone, absolutely not. But the fact that Amy's here, Amy would fucking love a perch. Amy would be in her element in the perch. Like like I wouldn't want her to go out on purge night and you know like purge on anybody else. But if she has to purge in self defense, like if she has to defend her home and her loved ones and her pets from some invaders, oh that this is the moment her life has been building to. Like you know the amount. In of- fact, you look you look you look forward to purge night. You get on your comfy your comfy tracky yeah. pants, your your slippers. You get a bowl of popcorn. You sit, smoke a big joint. You sit on the couch, just wait for those fucking purges to arrive. Just watch the show. Yeah, good luck. I set up cameras outside, not for security, just so I can see them getting fucking mown down in various different ways. Like half of our. I was noticing this the other day because we have so many weapons here. Like, you know, firstly, a lot of your farm implements are actually weapons. Yeah, they can be weapons. But Amy has quite a fascination with, you know, knives and, you know, old knives and spears and all sorts of things. So that- I believe uh, Gemma and I gave her a knife for Christmas because we understand she has a fascination with weapons. Yeah, and we just bought the other day for our anniversary, we bought uh, these two old uh, bayonets, like, you know, proper old oh my you know, God. bayonets and like, you know, they're crossed on the wall. But they really are sharp and deadly bayonets and you could just imagine her you know somebody actually made it into the house just like you're grabbing shit off the wall and using it to stab people on purge night yeah i would be i'd invite people over i said you've got to watch this girl purge (laughs) i don't know how we would go the good thing about my place is it's sort of hard to access because it's the top floor so you only really need to block one entrance i think i could i think we could be pretty pretty safe like if i had if I hard to escape though in, as well like if you have to go to a secondary venue i've got some secondary venues and i've got some you know like yeah. places that i could flee to hide whereas you once you're trapped in your apartment it's hard to get to a secondary venue who's coming to get me um oh the the <laughs> gang of teenagers a gang of teenagers what <laughs> A gang of bin stealing. They all ride bins up. They've motorized. They've customized and motorized a bunch of wheelie bins. We hear them come roaring up the street, waking up my baby like they do every fucking Saturday night well. Dumping mattresses outside my apartment, leaving hard rubbish. That's all they do on the purge night. They don't even come to attack me. They just come to dump, illegally dump rubbish outside my bins. Well, you know what they're doing? Exactly. They they, they on purge night like to smoke bongs in a cave near your house. (laughs) And then go and dump some things in bins in the wrong bin. That's what they. That, that's all they want to do. They just want to get out of this system once a year, and then they realise they've stumbled upon you and you're vulnerable, and they decide to come up just with what they have. So this is just right. with stuff that they might find in on the street, rocks, bottles, and they've smashed the windows of the businesses under your apartment are all kind of smashed as well so whatever they could get out of those businesses they can also use as weapons but they don't have any weapons that they've actually sort of pre-prepared okay so well there's nothing i mean there is a there's a couple of restaurants so they can probably get knives and shit but there's no large-scale weapons it's not like a hardware store or anything like that um i've got two entrances that i need to block if i need an escape we can go out the bedroom window onto the alcove that runs across the shop. So we do have an exit strategy. It just depends on how organized they are. If they leave a couple out on the street and then they send some people up, then we could be fucked. But if it's a bunch of teenagers, uh, I mean, much like Amy, <laughs> I've been waiting for the fucking purge night. Like if they announced it, if, if they came out, if Scott Morrison comes out tomorrow and says, look, everyone's doing it tough. And, you know, there's a lot of pent up frustration and we'd like to nip it in the bud. So uh, we're saying uh, on November 26, it's going to be a purge night. You know, all crime is legal. I'd be licking my lips. I'd be licking my lips. I would be getting, you know, I wouldn't even wait for them to come to me. I would be fucking down on the street waiting for the first guy on a fucking motorbike to roar past my apartment late at night, not even slowing down for the speed bumps. And I would be sticking a fucking steel pipe through the front wheel. Then I would turn around hoping to see a bunch of noisy teenagers drinking on the street. And I would charge up there just swinging my fists. I'd be picking up bits of rock and concrete and flinging them about, smashing them into the ground. In fact, I might die the first night of the purge but just from happiness just i'm gonna have a heart attack from the sheer joy of attacking all these people who drive me mental nearly every other night of the week charlie clawson died doing what he loved mowing down teenagers (laughs) during the purge (laughs) i 
think that's how you introduce it. If you realistically wanted to introduce a purge, I don't think that a small island experiment and murder being on the plate first up is actually what you lead with at all. I, I think that it's like when you're trying to introduce some sort of form of kinkiness into a um, relationship, <laughs> you know, you're not going to, you know, full kinkiness straight away. You sort of go, hey, yeah. is this a thing that you're interested in? Oh, if you're interested in that, then maybe this is the thing you're interested in. I think they do that with the perch. So they pitch it as we are currently in a state of intense, like there is... There is no doubt that there is a pressure cooker in our society. The fact that people are going to have to follow all these new rules, there's incredible pressures and restrictions and life is completely abnormal. We've decided we need us. We need everyone in Australia to go into a six-week you know, hard lockdown. We're going to have a curfew. We're going to have all these sort of things. But to sell this idea, you get one night during that thing where all bets are off. And it's just yeah. petty grievances. No major crimes you can't hurt another person is how they you know, introduce it so it's yes. it's all about going you know and taking drugs and you know you know like you said they're yeah, mowing down those you know like you know finding those kids <laughs> teenagers and, you know, kind of taking some retribution on them but they you make your way up to murder you get to the point where people are like i love purge night but i really wish i could murder somebody <laughs> i had a we have a friend and uh, we won't name him uh, for reasons that will become clear, but <clears throat> he uh, was once on holiday in a, in a in a coastal town with his brother, and they got jumped by a bunch of local teens. They were just walking home from a pub or the restaurant or something like that, and one of these teens walking past just like cold cocked my mate's brother, our mate's brother, in the face, and I think broke his jaw or something like that. And our mate spent the rest of the night like. Uh, Mel Gibson in Payback, one by one, just hunting down these teens. Like he's a full-grown man. He's in his like mid-40s now, and this was only about 10 years ago. But he took his brother to the hospital, then went back to the main town of the street and one by one <laughs> tracked down each one of these kids and beat the shit out of them. Not to like a hospitalization level, but one by one slapped them about, threw them into fences, kicked the shit out of them. And like... Got home at five in the morning with his shirt all ripped, covered in blood and stuff. And like his brother with his jaw wired up going, what the fuck did you just do? And he's like, look, I know it probably is a crime and I shouldn't have done it, but it really felt good to just get that out of my system. He was the original John Wick. Yeah. He invented John Wicking it. I think for him, it was more of a uh, anger management <laughs> issue. Something, but he was... <laughs> He said to me that there was just this kind of like he was, it, you know what, he was very John Wick because he described it as being very methodical about it. Like he wasn't getting into a frenzy. He was, he actually, because when he went back to this main street, the group had broken up and he managed to kind of find one group, pick off one or two or three and then see another group somewhere else and pick them off. But he said it was just about going up and knocking one of them on the ass, throwing one into a fence, slapping another one, leaving that group, then going to the next one and just... Not like overdoing it or getting into a blood frenzy or anything like that, but just getting some form of equilibrium. One final question, sir. It feels like you're <laughs> easing your way into a purge. Yeah. Are you trying to ease us into a purge? <laughs> it was. He purged. Well, I hope that conversation about uh, the imminent purge has really reassured all our friends <laughs> who are currently in lockdown <laughs> conditions. Well, let's talk about something uh, uplifting. Um, okay. I don't know if you've seen this, but... Uh, I was just scrolling through Netflix. I found this great documentary on Monty Python on Netflix. It's about 10 years it's old. Great. It was made in... Yeah, um, I've, I've seen Oh, you've, you know fantastic. what I'm talking about? I am... As soon as we finish recording this show, I'm halfway through it. I cannot get enough of this. This is like the last dance of comedy nerd for me. Like, it is such a brilliant documentary. So what they... It's basically... It's a very comprehensive... Um, uh, a history of Monty Python where they interview all the surviving members. So that was back when Terry Jones was still alive. So it's 2009. And it, it sets the scene of post-war England and the idea that um, these guys all came through like Cambridge and, and Oxford and were like these university review kind of comedians and uh, how they kind of went from stage shows to then TV and then obviously gone to do film and everything like that. But um, Jeremy and I, when we found it, we were like, oh, we love Monty Python. We started watching it and their sketches still hold up. Like we have been like crying with laughter at some of their stuff. And we were both sort of talking about why we have this affection for Monty Python. And then for me, you know, my family watched it. You know, my dad loved Faulty Towers. It's one of his favorite shows. We had 
matching tie and handkerchief on vinyl and stuff. And I used to listen to it religiously. And for Gem, it was a similar thing. And so we have this kind of affection for it. And you have your favorite Python. You know, we both agree that Michael Palin's like our favorite Python. And he seems like the friendliest here's one. Here's what I will say. And you haven't watched the whole thing. But you really come out of the end of it, or at least I came out of the end of it, with such a greater appreciation of Terry Jones's role in the, in the group. Yeah, right. Like he is the underrated a Python who was actually so responsible for so much of the great stuff that they did over the years, I think. Well, what's fascinating about it, and I'm only three episodes into, I think it's six episodes in total. I'll just finish the other point. So what Jim and I realised about why we loved it so much is hearing them talk about coming out of like that middle-class kind of conservative English background. The humour that they're doing is tearing down everything that they know. And for Gemma and I, that's exactly the same kind of background that we've come from as well. Like it is... You know, you could sort of, it can be written off as being kind of like elitist sort of like, you know, university tough kind of humor or whatever. But it's incredibly satirical about this, the pretensions of the middle class. And it's something that I didn't really kind of realize till I heard all, because I had no idea that they all came from these pretty well-off backgrounds. You know, they're all uh, doing degrees to become like lawyers and doctors and all this kind of stuff. It was sort of prototypical uh, middle class. But then the other thing that becomes so apparent is that that thing you're talking about with Terry Jones is they're all perfectly calibrated to be in a comedy troupe. Like yeah. each one of them brings something that is specific to them that just counterbalances. Like they, in episode three, they talk about when John Cleese left for the third series and things kind of got out of whack because Terry Jones started having more influence. And what they realized is that Terry and John would always butt heads. And it was that opposition that enabled the other members of Python to pick a side, which then created this balance. And so they kind of needed this constant tension and fighting in order to find that equilibrium. And they're not necessarily chummy, like Michael Palin and Terry Jones appear to be friends, but the rest of them, they, they don't know anything about each other apart from what they know about working together. Yet they, they created this amazing revolutionary comedy together. I watched the series from start to finish and then I watched all the movies immediately afterwards like I was so inspired by the series I remember the first time I got introduced to Monty Python I was at my friend Peter Shepard's house and uh he, his parents had the record of Life of Brian like you know the 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 cast recording of Life of Brian and what I didn't realize at the time was that they in those days it wasn't just the soundtrack to it wasn't like you were watching the movie without the um, yeah visuals, it was literally a different cast recording that they had done. And it had a slightly different script. Right. So when I first saw Life of Brian, I was actually initially a little bit disappointed because there was whole bits that weren't in the movie that were on the, you know, the recording that I had listened to so many times. But I rewatched Life of Brian and that film, even if it came out today, would still be an incredibly cutting edge. There is so much incredible political commentary we talk about the nature of like you know the splitting of organizations that routine about the you know when you're a kid that you just love about the people's front of judea know where the judean people's front you know like you're he's no. the united front of judea that stuff that is incredibly like if john oliver was rolling out that sort of satire in his show now you'd be like this is incredibly up-to-date hilarious satire yeah and it's also the the way they <clears throat> mix that surrealism and absurdity like uh, terry gilliam i think talks about how um they got they came off that tradition of like the goon show and then um uh, peter moore uh, dudley moore and, and peter cook and they were like well the rhythm of comedy is always the same where it's like set up set up set up that big punchline and they always kind of felt let down by that dudley moore peter cook punchline and then they're like well why do we have to get to the punchline like why don't we just cut out of the sketch when we're bored with it like once we've made our point and it's not working anymore terry you can do some animation and that's a way we can just get out of it and move on to the next thing it's like yeah like that's so obvious but with such like a, a revolutionary concept and that's why podcasts don't need to be started with three two one go because the funny will be in there somewhere <laughs> Doesn't have to be immediately at the start. Do you ever, when you see documentaries like that, same with The Last Dance or anything, like anytime you see a band documentary, do you all, do you ever feel disappointed that they're not best friends? Like that they don't all live in a house together, like they all have rooms with their first initial on it and they all come out and shake hands and stuff? Like, do you feel some kind of like, oh, 
you know, they I, I listened to these albums as a kid and they saw these films and I just would love to think that they're all best mates and they all hang out together and they just hang around just like cracking each other up. I I think maybe just that I've worked in an industry where I know that that isn't a necessary thing for so long. Mm. It did not surprise me. In fact, most of the great creative partnerships, like it's the rare exception where the people who appear to be best friends on television you know, are actually best friends in real life rather than the other way around, I think. So, no, it doesn't surprise me. Maybe it disappoints me a little in that you would think sometimes the fact that you all made this incredible thing together would, and I bet it probably does. I mean, they're always going to be pythons, no matter what they do for the rest of their lives, you know, and all of them have gone on to have, you know, incredibly, you know, varied and interesting, you know, careers, those who got a chance to do so. Um Mm. But, you know, they're always going to be bonded by this thing. This Like, I mean, it was hard for... John Cleese said it when he um, was talking about Faulty Towers, you know. He, he, he had one go at writing a TV show by himself and it was, like, regarded as one of the greatest TV shows of all time. <laughs> what, what the fuck do you do next? And he had that twice. Yeah. He was in Monty Python and he wrote Faulty Towers, you know, and... Like, what do you do for the rest of your life? You're always going to be that person. Well, that was like a fascinating observation that Terry Gilliam made about John. Um, they did, I think it's in the second episode. They It's a really great episode where they pretty much t- devote the whole episode to 15 minutes on Terry, 15 minutes on John, 15 minutes on the other Terry. And uh, Terry Gilliam's observation of John is that, like, he was the most famous coming into Flying Circus. He'd already been on other shows. And so he was the you know, unofficial star of Monty Python. And obviously he's six foot four and very recognizable. And so he get all the attention. And Terry Gilliam said that he had a little taste of that and then was like, oh no, this is not for me. Like I don't like being recognized by complete strangers and stuff. And he said, when he looks at John and he sees like John's immense intellect and his charm and his talent and his fame and his celebrity is gone, but he is tortured by this, need to understand the world around him and to control things and you know all the money that he's made from his movies and his tv he spends on like psychologists or he's been married five times and terry's like it's just like if he could just let go of that he would have the perfect life because all this stuff amazing stuff has happened for him he's incredibly talented he's incredibly intelligent yet because of that intelligence and that talent he's compelled to try and understand what is the deeper meaning of life? What does this all mean? It's like, it's kind of like when Michael Jordan at the end of the last dance is like, we could have gone seven. They should have just kept us together one more time to go seven. It's like, oh, there is a curse to being a genius. There is a curse to being like a prodigy. I think that, you know, I mean, John Cleese these days says some things that, you know, um, uh, offend some people. You know, he has a particular way of looking at the world that isn't in line with the, the way of the world that everybody else necessarily looks at it. And there's sometimes that sense of going, oh, just go away and be beloved. Like, we all love mm. you. We've all agreed that we think you're amazing. You don't need to be on Twitter. There's absolutely no value for you being on Twitter, saying any of these things. But I think it goes that very thing, which is it's still him in almost an intellectual exercise, trying to unpick things Figure on that intellectual level rather than, you know, necessarily being in touch with, you know, the way that civilization has evolved. Well, they, they bring out that in talking about the way he performed. And it's so true. Like when you think about all the Pythons as actors and performers, he plays it straight every single time. Like his anger is real and his sternness is real. And, you know, he, he just has this kind of like intensity to him. And I think uh, it was Eric Idle talking about, if you want to sum up like John Cleese visually, it's the idea of this giant six foot four man, like, doubled over like you know fist clenched just like barely contained rage as he wrestles with the frustration of not understanding why people don't understand that this is the way you do things and it's like it's so impactful because that's what my dad was like my dad loved faulty towers but at the same time he couldn't watch it because he was too empathetic to basil faulty he he uh, he felt for Basil. It's like if all these people in this fucking wacky hotel, if these guests weren't such idiots, if that waiter could just fucking do his job, probably if his wife wasn't always on the phone, like oh god, <laughs> it's like that. I think you're missing the point. Hey, uh, should we get to some mail, Will? Yeah, let's do it. Um, okay, this is from Brody. Oh, by the way, 
Uh, exciting news. Uh, we have a brand new website. Uh, it's still the same, tofop.com, but it has been refurbished. Uh, we've spent the last couple of months on this. It's been a big exercise where we kind of wanted to bring all the podcasts together um, under the visual banner of James Fosdark, who does all the amazing artwork, not just for Tofop, but for Fofop as well, and philosophy, uh, 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 and even Two Guys, One Cup. So it's basically an online gallery to James that also takes you into the world of Tofop and uh, the response has been really good so far people seem to like the website I love the website I'm really proud to tell people about it it's it's basically the only thing that's getting me through COVID at the moment <laughs> is the fact that we have this cool new website. Uh, so if you go to the website, uh, amongst the many things you can do, uh, check out other podcasts and stuff, and there's free comics there. We've uploaded a couple of early issues of uh, Quantum Cop and Everyone Relax, um, but there's a mailing list there. So if you want to uh, get our weekly newsletter and be informed of uh, uh, special things that are going on in the world of TOEFOP, so when we're doing things like uh, Instagram Live or when we can get back to doing live shows, anything that you might need to know about. If you sign up to this mailing list, uh, you'll be the first to know. We'll be sending that out weekly. Uh, that is the plan, at least, uh, so far. Um, but you can also send us uh, a mail there. If you listen to this show or philosophy or Two Guys, One Cop and you want to send us a message, you just have to go to tofop.com. On the splash page, you go down the very bottom, there's a contact us sheet. You just need to pull down the drop-down menu, pick the podcast, and then you can send a letter like our mate Brody has. Uh, he says, several times in the past week, I have eaten granola with chopped up banana on top and oat milk and thought, I wonder if Charlie from Tofop would consider this a raw pancake. It's a deconstructed pancake in your world, isn't it? <laughs> Not really. I'm more interested in the fact if he's, his thought pattern of, I wonder if Charlie from Tofop <laughs> would consider this a raw pancake. Uh, it's an internal monologue. Do you need to qualify which Charlie it is? Well, I think, you know... He's saying that, like, in the world of Tofop, would you consider this to be, as opposed to, you know, Charlie, you know, husband and father, or Charlie, professional actor, or Charlie, you know, movie producer, writer. He wants to get to the Charlie from Tofop. And what does Charlie from Tofop think about this? Uh, I think that is an insult. My eggs, my pancakes are blended together into a beautiful creamy batter. I had them this morning. Uh, here's the thing. I was using half a cup of oats with my banana and egg and baking soda. It's too much. Take it down to about a quarter cup of oats and you get a nice, beautiful, fluffy banana pancake. I would Brody say continues. just take out an extra quarter of a cup of oats as well and also <laughs> go to a cafe and get some fucking pancakes. Sorry, that's very offensive to people who live in the States where you can't go to a cafe. Uh, Brody continues. When you talked about whether or not Crocodile Dundee was based on a real guy or not, or if you just made that up, it made me think of a dollop episode I just listened back to, September 2016, 204, with a brilliant Australian comedian named Will Anderson as their guest. Obviously, I'm flipping you shit because I can't remember most things from four years ago either. Um, no, I think we were aware that uh, Crocodile Dundee was based on a true guy. We just couldn't quite yes. remember the details of what that story was. Um, uh, Brody continues, the politician who got into the car crash in TOEFOP 301. What was that? What politician got into a car crash? Can you remember? I mean, it was only in 301. I should remember. Oh, uh, Darren, 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 Darren Lyons. Oh, yes, Darren okay. Lyons. Former yeah. Lord Mayor okay. of Geelong, <laughs> right. Darren Lyons. Yeah, podcast Mike is furiously typing into our, into our text window so we don't embarrass ourselves. Um, okay, it's good that we know it's Darren Lyons because he's got a gag coming up. The politician who got into the car crash, TOEFOP 301, should have checked his rear view mare. Okay, nice. We were trying to come up with good puns, good jokes for that situation. That's not bad. <laughs> Worried that Bill and Ted 3 is going to be the Blues Brothers 2000, Brody. Oh, man, I caved. I said I wasn't going to watch. You know, if, if it went to a legal matter, Charlie, he would need to get an independent counsel. I don't get it. Oh, it's counsel. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah, sorry. All right. uh, yeah, um, I, uh, I broke my self-imposed Bill and Ted Free Band and I watched the new trailer and then I went across and watched the uh, San Diego Comedy Con pa Comic Con panel. So I feel now I know way too much about the movie, but has not dented my enthusiasm. Uh, Kat writes in, hey guys, 
You were talking about how everyone should microdose mushrooms <laughs> as it helps you know your place in the universe. Did we really say that? Did we say everyone should microdose? If we did, it was probably like, a, we're probably putting a bit of pepper on it. I, I don't know that everyone should microdose mushrooms. Um, I can't believe we said that. I hope we didn't. Uh, Mike, uh, podcast Mike, you go back and just scrub that from the internet, please. <laughs> I get pain treatment and they are ketamine infusions and they do wonders for depression as well. I don't really have a joke about it, but I thought it was another cool medicine that is considered abusable, but also has some great overall effects. Also, I know my doctor from Pain Matrix has reached out to Will's manager to try and book him for a pain conference that they do. Anyway, keep on medicating. I'm not a doctor, but as a chronic illness patient, I have over 10 different doctors. I wonder if that counts. Does that count? You're not a doctor, but you have 10 different doctors? Does one, 10 doctors make a, non, a non-doctor make? Yeah, I, I, okay, 10. That's, that's now the official measurement. If you're not a doctor, you have to have 10 doctors. <laughs> uh, finally, Will, um, exciting bit of news. Uh, you may recall a couple of episodes ago, um, uh, we read out uh, the lyrics of uh, Jacko's I'm an Individual. And we speculated, well, you speculated that it could be the lyrics to a Rage Against the Machine song. And um, for anyone who doesn't follow us on social media, uh, we were contacted at the start of last week uh, by an English band called Girl who had successfully created I'm an Individual as a Rage Against the Machine song. And you wrote on Twitter, and I have to agree with this, after 10 years of doing this show, it could be the greatest thing that has ever happened. It's like just to have such a ridiculous thought come to life and then for it to just really work. My dream is now that Rage Against the Machine hear about it. I would like Girl to like get recognised by Rage Against the Machine for the excellent job they've done to the point where Rage Against the Machine love it so much they start incorporating it into their sets. It is such a good track. Like I am not even joking when I I reckon I've listened to it to close to twenty times in the past week. Like that when they first uploaded it, I was playing it to Gem and I I I, I said to her like I was like listen to this. It's like you know rage rage against the machine. I'm an individual, and she thought I had just gone online to find it. And I was like no no like we talked about this on our show and someone <laughs> has done it and it sounds amazing. Like I actually think it sounds incredible. And my I have so many favorite parts of it. But I think my favourite part is at the end, after how long, not long, everyone relax, is when you hear him laugh and say, this is so fucking stupid. (laughs) So if you haven't heard it, uh, they've given us permission to put it at the end of this episode. So keep listening to the end of the show to hear Girls Rage Against the Machine version of I'm an Individual. But it doesn't end there because they did write into us. They were very keen for us to make sure that we got this. So they contact us on all our social medias, um, but they also emailed us. So this is from Josh or Joshua from Girl. Uh, two colon fop. Dear Will and Charlie, we've bloody done it, boys. You asked for it and we've bloody done it. I'm an individual. The immortal classic by Mark Jacko Jackson in the style of Rage Against the Machine. I'm the singer of a neo-soul alt band based in Bristol, the UK, called Girl. And that's G. You with an umlaut RL, that was me editorialising. Our music sounds nothing like Rage Against the Machine. I don't rap. I have a quintessentially British accent and I've never attempted a Zach De La Rocca impersonation. That being said, my guitarist and I gave it a red hot go. As Rage Against the Machine has such an unmistakable style, once you know the ingredients, it's hard to go wrong. Four hours later, we produced this. An MP3 of the track is attached should you want to play it on the podcast. We give you full permission for our performances to be played royalty-free. I can't speak for Jacko's lyrics, but hey, the podcasting world is, a, is the bloody wild west, so I say go for it, mate. Um, and here's what we actually sound like if you're into Childish Gambino meets a bit of, meets a bit, meets a bit of Moby, and then they give their Spotify link. Um, and we're also at The Girl Band on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for the years of laughs. Hope you enjoy the song, Josh. Fair to say we enjoy the song, Josh. Very much enjoyed the song, Josh. It's It really has brought me an incredible amount of joy. And I thank you very much for going into the effort of doing it and doing such an incredible job. And I would encourage everybody to follow Josh and his band and yeah, get behind their other music, which is also excellent, it turns out, because I then was curious and wanted to hear what their their actual music sounded like. And yes, it's very different. And it's, it's great. <laughs> I really, I hope that 
they get a, a whole bunch of new followers. And uh, yeah, it's such a good track. It's so fun. Like it works, it's Charlie. Right. It just it actually rocks. It's a really good song. Like I don't even know what neo soul alt music is <laughs> but can you guys just do rage against the machine style music because you're really fucking good at it i mean i was inspired by the song i was listening to it to go you know what yeah you can't fool me that's absolutely right yeah. i am a bloody individual i'm not an animal i'm a fucking human being, being. i really got my blood pumping i loved it we're all individuals to bring it back to monty python <laughs> well it's one more thing and look i don't know if this is a discussion we have off air but there was a conversation on, uh, on Twitter between Girl and a few listeners to Tofop where someone was saying, this should be the new Tofop theme song. And Girl said, we're up for it. They would do a theme song. Is it time to update the Tofop theme? We've had this one now for about six or seven years. I mean, I love that song. I know it's not, uh, we might have to drop the lyrics or something, but could that be the new Tofop theme song? I, I mean, I, I think it should be. I mean, it's 10 years, it's 300 episodes. It, it's time for a new lick of paint around the TOEFOP offices. We've got this new I website. I think so. You know, maybe we need a new introduction. Should we get Deeksy to do a new voiceover for the introduction as well? Should we do a new Deeksy? 100%. Get Deeksy on board for an updated post-300 version and then we go into a bit of girl with I'm an individual. I, I think I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> Me too. Well, I'm not sure if you remember this, but when we came up with that, uh, the track that we use now, we were sending my mate Ant, who did it for us, some references. And one of the references you sent was Gorilla Radio, Rage Against the Machine. So it's like, well, I just feel like we're upgrading. We're actually getting to a real proper Rage Against the Machine sounding track now. Yeah, this is Girl Rilla Radio. Girl, <laughs> sorry, I don't know why I tried to emphasize the girl just to make the joke work and then I couldn't actually <laughs> say what lap. I was trying to say. <laughs> All right, that's enough for this week. Uh, so yes, check out tofop.com. There's links there for our Patreon page as well. Uh, there's free comics to check out. Check out all our other podcasts. Will, who's on Philosophy this week? Uh, this week. So last week there was two people on. So Ursula Carlson and uh, Russell Howcroft. And then this week, maybe we'll do another two-person week because we've got a few up our sleeve at the moment. So uh, definitely on Wednesday, Craig Rucastle, uh, formerly of The Chaser, of course. He's got a brand new show coming to the ABC. And that's a great chat, really. Uh, first time philosophy guests. And then later on in the week or next week, uh, our great mate, Osher Ginsberg. Uh, that one I recorded last week. So that's going to uh, come out soon too. And Osher, I'll give a little tease to that. Osher kind of yeah. drops the idea of, you know, that he might at some stage be interested in politics. And I asked him really? what his main policies would be if he was going to go into politics. And I've got to be yeah. honest, after listening to him talk about the things that he would do if he was in Australian politics, there might be a chance that Osh is Prime Minister of Australia at some stage. Uh, question. Is this a purge? <laughs> Mr. Ginsburg, um, Mr. Ginsburg. <laughs> I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson.
This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you.